Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney sits down for a year-end interview on COVID-19, economic recovery, and Western alienation. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Very special edition of the program as we wind down 2020 and near the year end. And this is going to be, in this episode, my interview with Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney. Now, I traveled out to Edmonton to meet with Premier Kenney for a couple of reasons. Number one, Alberta has been disproportionately affected by COVID-19's economic challenges in many ways because... Because Alberta was already grappling with an energy sector in decline. This is not a, a new phenomenon by any stretch, but it's one that was very much exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. But the other side of that is that Premier Jason Kenney, up until very recently, was very resistant to the idea of putting in a lockdown. He was very resistant to putting in the massive sweeping economic shutdowns, especially in the second wave that a lot of other provinces embraced. Now, eventually he did put in some severe restrictions, although he talks about this with a fair bit of regret, talking about it as though it is a last resort and very keenly aware of the civil liberties challenges and the economic economic challenges that these measures tend to unleash. So I wanted to sit down and speak with Premier Kenny, not just about COVID-19, but also in general, the look at the year ahead, economic recovery, and still the growing sentiments of Western alienation that we've explored on the show in the past. So here's my interview with Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. You're tuned in to the Andrew Lawton Show. Sitting down in Edmonton with the Premier of Alberta for a look at the past year and, of course, the more optimistic look at the year ahead, Premier Jason Kenney. Premier, good to be with you. Thanks very much. Welcome to Alberta. Welcome to God's country, Andrew. Thank you very much. I always enjoy my time here. I haven't had as much uh, of an opportunity this year to come out here, so very grateful to be sitting down with you at what's been a very challenging year for, for a lot of Canadians, certainly for Albertans. But I wanted to ask about how it's been for you, because you were elected about a year and a half ago. You had this big ambitious agenda that you wanted to bring to the province and a lot of that like with so many leaders has had to be put on hold how has that been for you well look the whole thing has obviously been incredibly challenging for for everyone uh we've had to learn how to cope with the largest public health crisis and the largest economic contraction in a century and on top of that for alberta the largest collapse in energy prices ever um, that has uh, deepened the damage to our economy. So we've been dealing with what I call three black swan events at the same time while uh, trying to implement one, as you're, you're quite right, one of the most ambitious uh, reform agendas that any government's been elected on. We ran on 272, I believe, specific platform commitments. Because we had been through five years of tough economic times, we really needed to, to be bold in getting the province and its economy back on track. We continue to do that work, Andrew. A lot of it's not been noticed because everything's about COVID these days. But uh, we just finished, for example, the longest... Uh, we've sat more than any legislature in Canada, including the House of Commons, by far passed more legislation. We've now passed, I think, 78 bills. So we continue to plug away at the at building the foundations of our economic relaunch uh, through policy reforms that will be very important when we emerge from the COVID crisis. 
But when you look at those platform commitments, how has that triaging process really manifested where you've had to look and say, listen, this this is now a, a pipe dream? Has that happened, I guess? Well, I think on, on some of these things, you know, for example, um, we uh, in, the la in the last few weeks, we've had this big spike in cases in Alberta that we're focused on. So we've just put a hold on any new announcements or public initiatives on on the economic front. We need to not just focus, but be seen to focus on job number one, which is uh, keeping people as safe. We've always said, though, through the COVID crisis that we are seeking a balance between protecting lives and livelihoods because, uh, Andrew, for uh, the, the huge economic damage also has health implications, uh, mental and emotional health. Domestic uh, violence has gone up in this province. Opioid addictions and overdoses have gone uh, off the charts. So there are many challenges that we are facing. I think broadly we've continued to implement our, our one, one big ticket item, obviously, that where we've been set completely off course is our commitment to balance the provincial budget in this term of government. We were doing so through a a, a bold but but reasonable plan to, to reduce spending by about 3%, uh, but with the collapse of energy prices and the global economy, there is no realistic path to balance the budget in this term of government. So that we're unfortunately going to have to defer to the future while we focus on investing in health care and then economic recovery. That balance between lives and, and livelihoods is one that we don't hear a lot of discussion about from other leaders. And you talked about all of these other things that aren't even really being measured or assessed. You know, the impact on mental illness, on familial situations, domestic violence, all of these things that are very much real. You had been very resistant, as a lot of people have heard, and, and certainly as a lot of your uh, opponents, your political opponents, were, were very negative towards, very resistant to putting a lockdown in place. Understanding that, you had said that that initial distinction between essential and non-essential was a mistake. When did you realize that, and how did you realize that? Well, I think we that? realized that uh, in the spring. Um, I'll, I'll admit that in March, like every other government, we, in a sense, were rushing uh, and sometimes tripping over ourselves uh, to respond with great speed because we all saw on our television screens the meltdowns in Milan and Madrid and in, in, in Tehran and New York, and, and we didn't want that to be in Calgary and Edmonton. So uh, I think we, we erred, if you will, on the side of, uh, of extreme caution with respect to the public health. Even, though, even there, though, Andrew, even there, Alberta had the least stringent public health restrictions in phase one in the spring of all the Canadian provinces and less stringent than most U.S. states and, and almost all of the European countries, except perhaps famously Sweden. Um, so we did take a more balanced approach because we were facing the double whammy of the collapse of the energy sector here. Uh, but I think we learned, I, hopefully, as I said, hopefully governments will have the humility in all of this to admit where they have been wrong. And certainly one area we were, we, where we were wrong was to make a totally arbitrary distinction between essential and non-essential retail businesses, which effectively meant the mom-and-pop clothing store had to shut down. But people went and bought their clothes at Walmart because they had a grocery section or a pharma store. So that was totally unjust. With the way we've done it now is to say there's a 15% cap on uh, of fire code capacity for all retail businesses. And that little mom and pop store, they should be able to operate safely with three or four customers in there at a time with, with, with you know, masks and all the appropriate protocols just as hundreds of people can operate safely in a grocery store. So we, I think we've got the right balance on a lot of this as we've learned. 
One of the challenges is that some provinces are not uh, taking that retrospective look and are, in fact, doubling down. I think the most notable example of that is is Manitoba. And I I know that every province has to look out for its own interests and, and make its own decisions. But there is a big comparison game that the media is playing, and I think that a lot of voters might be playing, of looking and saying, well, hang on, how come Premier Kenny's doing this, but Premier Pallister's doing this, and Premier Ford's doing that? And how much, if at all, do you take other provinces' responses into consideration? Well, first of all, I think none of us should criticize each other. We all have our own um, our own urgent circumstances that we have, pers- and our own local circumstances, too. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I recall some of the, 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 the so-called smart Laurentian elite types in Ottawa were writing articles recently saying the, the federal government should take control of everything. Well, I'll remind you, this is the same federal government that was arguing against border closures from COVID hotspots, yes. that was arguing against mask usage right through April, um, that got a lot of things wrong and arguably was late to the mark on getting these COVID, these vaccine contracts signed. But my goodness, how could the how could bureaucrats in Ottawa, and I've been there in Ottawa as a minister, how could they know about the nuances of what's happening on a particular First Nations reserve in Alberta versus a neighborhood in, in, in North Calgary? Like, they have no capacity to respond in a targeted and local way like provinces do. Having said that, we keep an eye on what other provinces are doing, and I think they do on us. We we try to um, see what, what might be working and what isn't working. Uh, I'll, I'll offer a generalization. I think that, that, that generally, Alberta's response has been quite similar to that of British Columbia. Um, in terms of stringency of public restrictions, these have been the two least stringent provinces. Uh, they've been most likely to take targeted regional approaches um, and, and focus on public education and compliance rather than enforcement and coercion. And isn't that interesting? Because you've got neighboring conservative and NDP governments. I think the point is this should not be seen through political, partisan, or ideological lens. Uh, I think the two Western provinces have done quite well much lower levels of infection, hospitalizations, and fatalities than the large population central Canadian provinces with a lighter touch on restrictions. Not to say that it's been perfect, but I think think the Western model has worked quite well. When you bring up the Laurentian elite, a lot of the criticism towards uh, what your government has done seems to be coming from people that aren't in Alberta, and of course, you know, the NDP notwithstanding. But how do you address or respond to that characterization that Alberta has just been this free-for-all, that bodies are piling up in the streets? Because the numbers you've said don't seem to add up to that. You know, I call this Alberta bashing. Um, A lot of this, I'll just take a a bit of a step to the south here and say, I see a lot of that focused on the governor of of Florida, Mm -hmm. while the governor of New York is being praised. He's actually getting awards from the media. He's getting an Emmy with the highest per capita death rate in North America. And Florida has one of the lowest of the large population U.S. states with much less stringent restrictions when New York has been on various kinds of lockdown for nine months. That's how I feel here in Alberta. We are well below the national average for COVID fatalities, well below the um, uh, Ontario, Quebec and Manitoba, uh, and only slightly ahead of British Columbia. Uh, so, And we are well below the COVID fatality rate of, I believe, all 50 U.S. states in all but a couple of the uh, 35 or so European countries. So, uh, you know, in the Western world, by which I mean sort of North America plus Europe, um, we have done uh, very well, not perfectly. Uh, and, and, and it's true that over the past six months, uh, we, we did see a significant spike in cases, but 
on the day that we are doing this interview, it appears that we have stabilized that. Uh, our R rate, rate of transmission is back to one. Um, and basically, we've seen flat or declining total active cases in the province and roughly flat hospitalizations. So I, I, and, and that's before we announced our more stringent measures recently. So I think that we, we, we've uh, hopefully, knock on wood, uh, have turned a corner and we've got control of this thing to avoid the exponential growth that really could be catastrophic. How much of that is due to, in your view, the response from the healthcare system, from the government, from public health, versus simply Alberta's demographics of, of a very young population relative to? I think other it's. I think it's actually both. So let, let me let me pitch to you, it, it, because there's a lot of Alberta bashing. Let me pitch the Alberta model. I, I, one thing I've learned in all of this, is that the famous Alberta. Uh, Enter, spirit of enterprise, of risk-taking, in, in, lives in, our, in many areas of our public service and our healthcare system. Give you an example. Back in March and April, what was everyone talking about? Running out of PPE in the hospitals, yes. running out of ventilators. We were the only, we were by far the best prepared province, I would argue jurisdiction in North America, because we have entrepreneurial public servants in procurement at our health department, which surged orders and had very strong relationships with suppliers around the world that got us in front of the queue to the point where we were able to share millions of units of masks and PPE with Ontario and Quebec, dozens of ventilators. It seems that those Laurentian elites were bashing Alberta, forgotten all about that. Um, we were the first province to have an online assessment tool. We had the strongest contact tracing system in Canada. We have consistently, this is a fact, not a, an opinion, consistently had the highest per capita level of testing in the country, one of the highest in the world. We were the first to develop our own uh, wireless uh, tracing app, which is connected into our contact tracing, unlike the federal app. We um, have innovated in, in so many areas. It was recognized by the NHL that chose Edmonton to be their playoff a final hub because we had the best COVID record of any large population jurisdiction in North America. Now, again, no, and, and, and a great credit goes, of course, to our frontline healthcare professionals. Obviously, having a younger population does help with the demographics and being a newer province, by which I mean many of the uh, long-term care home deaths in central Canada that we tragically saw were because they are operating with older infrastructure. Um, smaller rooms, two or three or four patients in a room, sharing one washroom, uh, older ventilation systems, that made those nursing homes more vulnerable. We have a more modern housing stock. So yes, younger population, more modern infrastructure, but also I would say a very nimble and entrepreneurial public sector, which helped to lead the way here. You mentioned earlier that this shouldn't be viewed through a, a political lens, but there is still a, a public buy-in that's necessary. And I, I think we've seen, especially at the federal level, and you no noted a couple of great examples, why people lost trust in the public health advice they were getting from the federal government. Provincially, though, how is it really manifesting in your view when you have people on one hand that are saying nothing is ever enough, you need to go further and further, and on the other hand, people that will take any restriction at all as an affront to their liberty? And a lot of people, I would say, in that camp are supporters of the United Conservative Party, or at least were in the last election, and how has that balance been for you? Well, uh, it, it's not been easy to balance. Uh, we, but we've been explicit from the beginning that we we need to protect both lives and livelihoods. And I've been the, I think, the only government leader in Canada who has spoken co consistently about the need to minimize uh, the impairment of fundamental rights and freedoms. Now, I have said that I do believe, as the Constitution, Section One, says that. 
uh, impairments or abridgments of, of, of constitutional rights can be reasonably justified in a free and democratic society. But as the courts have told us, to justify them, they have to be proportionate, they have to have a clear, legitimate policy goal, and they have to be limited, limited impairments of rights. So that's the, that's the approach we've tried to take. I'll give you an example. Um, places of worship. Well, uh, a lot, most other provinces are completely shut down, at least in their hot zones, places of worship. Mm -hmm. But the second fundamental freedom enumerated in the Charter is freedom of religion, which is obviously inextricably connected to freedom of worship, which means as well congregate and not just personal worship. And so to impair or bridge that, you've really got, I mean, you've got to demonstrate that it's a last and limited resort. So what we've done is to say, just as we've re limited retail to 15%, we've re limited uh, places of worship to 15%. Rather than going to the extreme, where, where some would like us to go, which is to completely shut those places down, we say, look, we believe at that, it's a, it, it is a real impairment. We regret that. But we do have to reduce general social contact to avoid exponential growth and the, and the overwhelming of our healthcare system. At, at, what I'd like to say, Andrew, is at least our government is trying to think through those things in a balanced way, rather than picking one or two of the extreme lanes in the increasingly polarized debate. Well, that's a, a hugely important point, because a lot of the times the emphasis has been, and for good reason, some might say, on the one singular metric of COVID cases or, or COVID deaths. But there are civil liberties concerns. There are the other issues we were talking about earlier. And at a certain point, when you were talking about the need to protect fundamental freedoms and resisting, even as recently as the end of November, putting in, in place a lockdown, what was the point at which it, it, that switch flipped and you said, okay, we, we have to do what I've been so saying we didn't want to do? I would argue that we, we don't have a lockdown. I think a lockdown is defined by stay-at-home orders, shelter-in-place orders, the suspension of most business activity, uh, and, and really a coercive approach. That's not our approach. I, the, the restrictions are real, and they're painful. And, 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 and it, it, it pains me to think about the number of businesses who may never come back from this, the, the tens or hundreds of thousands of people who have lost their jobs, the, the mental and emotional anguish that they are going to be going through during the holidays, the separation of families. What disturbs me a little bit about some of those who, who have always wanted the harshest restrictions from day one is, 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 is it seems to me a, a, a unwillingness to really take, contemplate the deep and huge damage to the, li to, to the lives of people as a result of these kinds of restrictions. But ultimately, what compelled us to go to the most recent restrictions was this. Um, we um, had gone from 100 people in hospital with COVID. This is not about cases. These are about hospitalized. Mm -hmm. I know there's a big debate about the accuracy of PCR tests and false positives and infectivity and all of that. Put that all to the side. What the metric that matters most, really, for us is how many folks with COVID are in hospital because of COVID. We went from 100 on August the 26th to 650 uh, a week ago today. 600% growth in hospitalizations. Now, we could expand capacity by canceling surgeries and denying other people non-urgent care for non-COVID-related uh, healthcare. But at great cost to them, in many cases, shortening their lifespans, putting them in pain as well. And ultimately, if we were to get up to 2,200, 2,400 uh, COVID patients in the hospital, we'd be at our maximum. We would be stretching the system be to, a, to a breaking point. And we could not responsibly do that. 
we, we had, in our view, to act to prevent exponential growth spinning out of control in terms of the pressure on the healthcare system with the collateral uh, uh, impact on other patients waiting for other kinds of care. That's why we had to step in when we did as a last and limited resort. When you say it's not a lockdown, though, I agree it probably, well, it does, in fact, fall short of what some other jurisdictions have done. But if you're in one of those sectors, like a massage therapist or even a restaurant that has to do takeout in, instead of being able to be allowed in, that nuance is less important. Isn't I agree. And, and Andrew, I, I hope you recognize I've been giving a voice to those people. You have. As been. a you leader. And, and, I, and, and this was not something, I think it's rather evident that we, did, we, we were reluctant precisely because of that damage. And you know, one of the things I, I, um, I find kind of distasteful or unfortunate in this debate is some who support uh, like sustained and extreme lockdown policies, almost, you know, mocking the concern about economic damages as you're just concerned about money, not people's lives. Mm -hmm. It's about people's lives. You take away someone's livelihood. You take away their life savings that they've the work towards running a small business. You take away their ability to pay their mortgage, to put food on the table for their families. And, and some people say, well, just let the government fill the gap. You know what? There's a lot of people who um, uh, never want to be dependent on the government and who may lose their, their life savings with these kinds of restrictions. So all I'm saying is you're absolutely right to, to spotlight that. And I, I, all I can say is, is that I have the deepest regret for those people facing that. But if somebody could give us an alternative approach, a policy response that did not involve any painful restrictions, I would have taken it from day one. We, we took the lightest hand, took restrictions as a last and limited resort. But at the end of the day, a viral spread had become so widespread here that not even the most careful business could prevent it. The restaurants, I pointed out, they only had 1% of traceable cases, went back to restaurants before our, our contact tracing was overwhelmed. But now we're, we were at a stage where any customer or staff might be coming in with the virus because of no fault of their own. So we simply had to act to preserve the healthcare system and to prevent exponential growth and its catastrophic consequences. I wanna look forward after looking backwards a fair bit, just as we wind down here and ask you about one of the biggest issues I've heard about in my visits to Alberta and even just in the last few weeks, because you are correct to note that because of the energy sector's issues here, this province has been disproportionately affected economically by the pandemic. Western alienation hasn't gone away. A lot of the media coverage of it might have mitigated, but a lot of these concerns are, are still there. I know we have uh, next year the referendum that you've announced for equalization, but how do you respond respond to that sentiment, which I think has probably only grown in the last year as people still feel like the federal government just doesn't care what happens here. Well, highlighted by the most recent announcement about the 476% increase in the carbon tax, which we've been predicting from day yeah. one. And all the, remember all the Laurentian elites, your friends in much of the central Canadian media, ridiculed the suggestion mm -hmm that the carbon tax was going to go up to $200. Yes, I recall Catherine McKenna last year uh, laughing at that very idea. Well, it's not a laughing matter here. Yeah. In resource-producing regions, a part of this is a huge transfer of wealth from energy-producing sectors. The largest sector in the Canadian economy is oil and gas in this province. Though That's the largest export industry, the largest creator of employment, the largest creator of government revenues. And it seems like we have a government in Ottawa that 
is basically at best indifferent and at worst hostile to that industry much of the time. Uh, and, and secondly, the, this huge increase in the carbon tax represents an enormous transfer of wealth from rural areas to urban areas because rural people obviously consume more energy in what they do and how they travel and how they live. So, look, you're right. The, the frustration is deep here. People want us focused on protecting lives and livelihoods right now, which has meant obviously trying to work uh, constructively with the federal government on the COVID response. But when we're past COVID, uh, we will be right back to our fight for a fair deal for Alberta in the Federation. We will be having a referendum on equalization next fall. We are pursuing the possibility of our own Alberta provincial police and pension plans like, like, Quebec, like Quebec has, Ontario has with police. Uh, we will be establishing our own provincial chief firearms officer. We will be doing everything within our power to strengthen this province uh, in the Federation along the lines of the original vision of the Constitution. I always say Albertans are big Canadians. We are the most free trading province. We're the most against internal trade and labor barriers. We are leaders in that, but we also are leaders in defending the, the, the power of provinces, to, uh, uh, together with Quebec on that, by the way. So much work to be done on that post-COVID. We began by talking about the items that you were elected wanting to do and, and which have had to perhaps take a bit of a back seat uh, with the pandemic, but it sounds like this isn't one of them. No, well, it, it, in a way, we, we, we had to switch to our focus, on obviously, on, on, on COVID, on lives and livelihoods. But we continue to do a lot of the uh, policy work under the, on, under the surface on issues like uh, uh, provincial police, provincial pensions, uh, uh, democratic reforms, uh, and other issues. So, you know, we have to do multiple things at the same time. But the focus, obviously, right now is lives and livelihoods. So just in closing, outside of everything you've had to deal with in the last year, what's the plan and the hope for Christmas and the New Year for Jason Kenney, the person? Well, I'm going straight from this interview to uh, receive the very first dose of vaccines in Alberta. Not, not personally, but the shipment. And um, we seem to have stabilized the growth of the virus in Alberta. I believe that we're going to end, we have the very good chance we're going to end this year with great hope and optimism by the end of the first quarter of 2021. We hope to have vaccinated the 10% of the most vulnerable in our population. Uh, growth is going to return. Uh, and I, I, I believe once we get past all of this, that, that 2021 is going to be a banner year. People, Albertans are natural optimists. They just need a reason for their optimism. And I believe once we get past the worst of COVID, there will be a lot of reasons to be optimistic about this young, entrepreneurial province filled with energy and creativity. Premier Jason Kenney, thank you very much and Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas, Andrew. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.